I've taught at a seminary level before, and one of the assignments I've given to students is to take the book of Romans, gather together in a group of four, let's say, and do a speed read of it over a period of like an hour where they just have to read through it. And basically, they should know it by now. These are seminary students. They're late in their years. If they don't know Romans, there's a problem. That would be a passage in a book that they would have been reading quite a bit as they're working on their master's degree. But to read through it, and then they were to get together as a group, and they were to construct a presentation of the gospel using the outline of the book of Romans. Actually, even today, as I was driving into the church, I thought how actually wonderful and clear Paul is making the gospel known. He starts out at the very beginning saying that it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. And then he says, well, the reason you need salvation is because the righteous, just wrath of God is being revealed against all manner of ungodliness of unrighteous men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he goes to a systematic indictment of all men of every stripe. There are men of other religions who bow before their idols and moral men. And then those religious men who come and bow before the God of the Bible and name him as their God and build the religion around them in and of themselves. He indicts all of them. He comes to chapter three. He indicts them all of being in such a condition and such a state that they're guilty before God and they have no answer in themselves. And then he begins to present how it is that the answer has been provided through the work that Jesus Christ has endured for them in their behalf, securing a pathway and a way for them to be made just before God. He begins to argue in chapter 4 that it is impossible for a man to add to merely only faith in what Christ has accomplished as his means of salvation by demonstrating that the very one who is the father of the faith, Abraham, learned this law, this principle of faith, before God ever pronounced or gave the law to anyone. And that he himself is a demonstration that the individual is made just before God, is made just before God by faith alone in God's provision. And now he comes to chapter 5, and this is where we find ourselves in chapter 5. In verses 1 through 11, he basically presents to us that we are justified by grace alone in Christ alone. And when this takes place, we enter into an experience. We experience peace with God. We experience the access into the grace and benefits of our salvation being poured out upon us. As a result of that, we have a foretaste of heaven and we begin to boast or exalt in the glory that's yet to be revealed, the glory that God is going to bring upon us one day. And as a result of this, we even then boast in the tribulations and difficulties we experience because we find in the midst of those challenges and those tribulations and those persecutions that the faith we had in the Lord Jesus was real and genuine. It was not just a momentary thing in which we were just trying to appeal to some sentimental notion or we are trying to appease some person who came to us with some kind of evangelistic zeal or because we were superstitious or we are just going along with our culture or whatever it was or we were just for a moment trying to rid ourselves of some problem or some guilt but that we'd actually truly by faith anchored ourselves into Christ and His salvation And in the midst of tribulation and trial, what we discover is that we love Him. That He's poured love into our hearts. We love Him and we respond to the love that He had for us in saving us. And then Paul pivots to demonstrate the love that God had in saving us. He demonstrates that when God saved us, He didn't merely take care of the matter of our sins so that we could be justly forgiven and brought into a just and righteous relationship with Him. In other words, God did not simply express His justice in providing salvation for us. But God, above everything else, 
demonstrated his love for us and gave his life for us. And so Paul talks about the fact that God demonstrates his love for us and that he saved us when we were enemies with him. And he saved us when we were sinners, transgressors who rebelled against his rule and his law. And that's what sin is. It's just rebelling and transgressing against the rule and command of God. And God brought us salvation when he says we were ungodly. And the idea of ungodly means not like God. We were made in God's image, but because we had sinned and rebelled against him, we'd actually become foes of God. We'd turned out where we were antagonistic towards God and God's own justice and righteousness and wrath brought us under his own divine antagonism. And we were defaced in the image that he had made us in. We were an ungodly, this is the condition of man apart from God's saving work. He is a wreck. He is a ruin of what God intended him to be. He's a moral wreck, vacated image of God, a a collapsed relic of what God had made him to be, ungodly. And yet, the Bible says God demonstrates his love in that although we were enemies and although we were transgressors and sinners and although we were these ruined wrecks, God didn't approach us and God didn't engage us and encounter us as enemies or as sinners or as ruined wrecks. But it says God came to us while we were helpless, while we were without strength. God's love and God's mercy was, this is how I'm going to engage these individuals. Although they defy me, and they stand as foes against me. And although they have fallen and collapsed in complete ruin, I'll just approach them as helpless and without strength. I'll meet them in their, that condition and that merciful condition. There is no other way that God could have approached us that was true and factual and yet provided a way for mercy and love than to approach us as just helpless wrecks. And so he did. And in this state, he came to us And he gave his son to die for us. Now, in verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 5, the death of Jesus Christ as the vehicle for our justification and reconciliation is mentioned four times. In other words, as God speaks about this wonderful prevailing love that God had for us, he bringing salvation and reconciliation to us so that we could be right with God and have a relationship with God. And in that relationship, we could not only now, not only have peace with God, access and outpour grace, rejoice in the hope that's yet to come, the glory that's yet to come, even rejoice in the midst of tribulation. But Paul will say also, we finally come to the point where knowing how much God loves us, we just rejoice in God. We just take joy in knowing him and having a relationship with him and having fellowship with him. And this is made possible. And this experience of the outpoured love of God where he loves us and we love him and we enjoy that is because, and he says it four times, he speaks of because Christ has secured this through his death for us. And so you'll read in due time, in verse 6, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's the first mention. And then God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then you read now, having been justified by his blood, which is a reference to his sacrificial death for us. And finally, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. You see that? Four times he speaks of the death of his son, Jesus Christ. Here Paul is proclaiming that our salvation is rooted, it is secured in the death of one individual in the place of all individuals. That's what he's saying. So now he moves to verses 12 through 21. 
And it seems at this point in time that what Paul is doing is he's answering a question that comes to his mind and might and should come to your mind as well. And that is, how can the death of one person provide salvation and justification and reconciliation and regeneration for many or all people? How can the death of one person provide all of that for all of us? How can one die for all? And so Paul takes up the responsibility to answer that question. Another way of looking at it is at the end of verse 11 in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, where Paul is kind of building this argument of the experience we enter into by being justified through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, having been reconciled to God through the outpoured love of God, through the death of Jesus Christ, Paul sums it all up by saying and explaining that our salvation, our reconciliation comes to us, look at the end of verse 11, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul is going to answer this question, well, how is that possible? How is it possible that we might be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? And he's going to explain that to us. And then at the very end of this passage, again, at the very end of Romans chapter 5, the last words again here are, Paul is basically going to say that through Jesus Christ, our state of salvation, our eternal life comes to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that grammatical construction is there at the end of verse 11, and then it's at the very end of this chapter, because Paul is demonstrating these things are connected. What he is going to say is connected to what he's just said. What he's going to say is to demonstrate and prove how the death of Christ can accomplish your salvation of mine. And the reason Paul is doing this is because he wants the individuals he's writing to to be completely confident of the salvation that Jesus Christ provides for them. Be assured that they are forgiven and right with God and they're in a right standing and they've gained an everlasting salvation. Another way to put it is this way. When I'm sharing the gospel with individuals overseas or even here, and in many cases I do travel to places where there is somewhat of a historical background of Christian influence in those cultures. And oftentimes I've taken to meet individuals, even in countries that are what we call Muslim countries or Buddhist countries or Hindu countries. I'm taken to families that have moved outside of that culture, so they've come into the Christian culture, maybe for generations, but they're what the people in the churches call skin Christians. They're just cultural Christians, just on the outside. And they're easy to find in those cultures. It's very easy to move from a heavily laden Muslim culture or Buddhist culture or Hindu culture, which is basically the purpose of those religions, to provide kind of a, a cultural cohesion. And once you have a family member or your family turns in its history to follow Christ, the temptation is to just become a cultural Christian, just to mimic the culture around you by developing a Christian culture. And so it doesn't take long for a second or third generation to come along. They claim to be Christian. They become a part of just a gathering of people that identify themselves as Christian, but they have no deep experience of Christ himself in their life. Now, if that happens there, you know what happens here as well. It happens in our world as well. That's why we wrote the book we have back there, Saving Evangelicals. It's possible to be in an evangelical church, to grow up in an evangelical church, to be influenced by the culture of evangelicalism, and just to be a cultural Christian. They call them skin Christians. It's just on the skin, it's not on the inside. So you meet with an individual like that, and you talk to them, and they have an education in basic Christian thought, and you might ask them the question if they believe they're sinners, and they'll say yes. So you could ask them the question, do you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins? And they won't even hesitate and say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ has died for my sins. Then you ask them the question, well, how is that possible? 
what was it that Jesus did and what did Jesus accomplish? How is it possible that his suffering and his death has any benefit for you? Can you explain that to me? Well, they can't. They can't even explain it. Well, let me explain this more. How is it possible that one individual who died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross in Jerusalem, among a number of other individuals who suffered and died on the cross, how is it that his suffering and his misery and his death has provided any kind of benefit for your life? How does that work? Can you explain that to me? I mean, I said, look, you know, just last week before I came to visit you, I had a really massive head cold. I was miserable. I just could hardly breathe. It was a misery for me. And was that any benefit to you? Did that help you in any way? Well, how is it that someone could suffer 2,000 years ago and it be of any benefit to you? Now they have to answer a question that's a little more deep and a little more penetrating and something they can't presume upon and something they just can't have some kind of slight cultural identification with. They have to think about its ramifications for their lives. And maybe this is an avenue to open their hearts up to what Christ has really done for them so they can truly be born again and be saved by putting all their faith in Him. And Paul is bringing the gospel here, and I think that's what Paul is doing. He's, at, he's basically asking that question and seeking to answer that question. How is it possible that one man could die for all men? How could it be possible that Christ's death for us could benefit us? For answering this question, Paul basically moves us into a kind of anthropological study. And I'm not talking about men in society, but a study of the nature of man. A little bit of anthropology or understanding human nature. And he starts with the first man, Adam. And he takes up a dark subject about the life of Adam that those he is writing to would completely embrace and understand. He points out that Adam was the first man who was created. He points out that Adam was given a very clear and specific command of God after God created him, that prior to that, Adam enjoyed this perfect, sinless, complete relationship with God, and God had set him in a garden. And I'm telling you, when Paul is writing these things, this is the information that's informing those who are reading it and understanding what he's writing. And he points out that Adam broke the command that God had given him, and Adam fell into sin. And he points out that at the moment in time in which Adam did that, there was a universal fallout from that one man's sin that came upon all men. And I'm going to read verses 12, 13, and 14. He says at the end of this that Adam is a negative type of what Jesus is as the positive anti-type. You might remember that a type is like a shadow. It's like a reflection it's like a mirror or a fainter expression of what the real thing is. And an antitype is, in this sense, it means the real thing. And that Adam is a type of what Christ is in full and perfect expression in a positive way, the antitype. He's a reflection or a shadow of the real thing. And so, get your Bibles open. Let's now look at Romans chapter 5. And let me read to you verses 12 through 14. Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. But until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness and transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the consideration of this passage and your word and that you would speak to our hearts 
you would begin to confirm in our hearts the very things that your spirit intended when he gave these words to Paul to write to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at this verse 12 again. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And the first principle here is this. It's the principle that sin entered the world through Adam's sin. Sin came onto the stage through Adam's sin. Adam's sin was against a clear and specific God-given command. God gave Adam latitude. Adam was born in a perfected state. Adam was in a relationship with God. Adam, in that relationship, not only experienced God in this kind of walking with God in the garden, but Adam's very soul, Adam's very life radiated this moral purity that he enjoyed and this good relationship he had with God. And God gave Adam one command, which was that he was not to eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that he would eat that, he would surely die. That was the one command that God gave to Adam. And Adam ate of that fruit. Adam disobeyed God. And in the moment that Adam sinned, this passage says it was as if the evil that resided in the satanic forces or in Satan himself that existed in some superhuman setting invaded the world and came upon the stage of human life and on the stage of the life where Adam was living in the world. So it says through Adam's one sin, sin entered the world. It was like the nexus point. It was the breaking point. It was the collapsing point of the dam in which all of a sudden came flooding in this principle of sin and it flooded over Adam's life. And in that moment, there was a mutation of sorts that took place in the creature Adam. And that moment, this man who had been made in the image of God, there was a moral collapse and he became, in a sense, as a vacated ruin. You might think of it this way. The Bible says that Adam didn't know that he was naked. He was with Eve and they didn't know they were naked. And I perceive it this way, that they were in the image of God, filled with God and his presence and his spirit. And when they sinned, God left this image that they were made for. We were made to be vessels in which God pours his own life into us. And God lives and abides within us. And that's the promise that God says he'll do for us when we believe in Christ when he forgives us and justifies us, that God will come and live within us and abide within us. And Adam had that experience in a sense. God resting and abiding in his soul and he was morally perfect and his body radiated out the light of the moral perfection. An image and expression of this moral perfection is of the Lord Jesus who was the sinless son of God. And you'll see that during his ministry there's a point in time just before he goes to the cross to die for our sins that he goes up upon a high mountain, which we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And he goes there with Peter, James, and John. And it says when he arrived at the top of that mount, that all of a sudden his body began to glow from the inside out and radiated so brightly that it was like a fuller's light. They couldn't even look upon it. It was like the sun shining from his body. I believe this was not an expression of Christ's divinity. I think it was an expression of his moral perfection as the one sinless, Morally perfect man radiating out a light that would have radiated out from Adam and Eve and being made perfect and sinless and morally perfect and shining and radiating that light in the garden. And then Adam sinned and in that moment God vacated that place and he became a ruin and a wreck and 
the light went out and a, a morphing took place, mutation took place in which there was an inner conditional collapse that took place within the heart of Adam and his very nature and at the same time his outer conditions changed. He not only did he change inwardly and become a morally corrupted individual, but at the same time that collapse inward radiated and rippled out through all of creation and all of creation began to change as well and he began to live in a world that was corrupted as well. And if you remember, God then removed Adam from the garden and he had to live outside of the garden that God had created. He had to go and move out into a world that was cursed by death and sin. And The moment Adam sinned, Adam entered into spiritual death, in which he was spiritually separated from God. God was no longer residing within him. He became subject to physical death. He was heading to physical death, the end of his life. And he was also heading into eternal death, in which he would be separated from God forever. And at that moment as well, he began to live in a world that was under the influence of his sin and of his death. That's it. Adam sinned. Sin entered the world. In fact, here's the second principle. The principle is that sin has infected not only Adam at that time, but it infected a world of human beings. The world that's being referred to is not just generally the world or the, as we know it and the earth that we live on, although that was corrupted and influenced, but it's speaking of the infection of sin or the corruption of sin that came all upon Adam's race. That's our human condition now that we're born into. When it says that through one man's sin, sin entered the world, that's how we have to understand it. So that every human being is physically bearing the corruption that was in Adam when he fell into sin. That there is somehow woven into our own makeup and our own being and our own nature, this fallen nature. The light doesn't shine out from us anymore. We don't radiate. We're not clothed in light anymore. We're corrupted. We don't have God residing and abiding within us. We're separated from Him. We have inclinations and proclivities that have been woven into our nature in this fallen state. We have, in a sense, Adam's genetic makeup. You might think of it this way. All of us were in Adam when he sinned because all of us have trickled down and all of us come into existence through Adam. And when Adam sinned, there was this mutation in his very nature and being that he has seminally passed on to all of us. So that all of us have experienced the corruption that was in Adam. It's come to us all. So our inner condition has changed and our physical condition has changed. We've been born with this mutation of sin and we have from that time lived outside the garden in a sin-cursed world. Our natures were corrupted with Adam's sin. Adam's sin has flowed from that first primal point of human sin and departure from the will of God, and it has moved its way down throughout and coursed its way down throughout all of humanity. We've all inherited Adam's fallen state. We've all been born physically, spiritually, separated from God, and we are headed towards eternal death just as Adam was headed. A couple years ago, Matt was telling me about a testimony they gave at a neighborhood party. And he was with a woman who was saying, as they were conversing with one another and just visiting with one another, everybody is basically good. Everyone is a good person and they have to learn to be bad and it's just their environment, but they're good people. And, and Matt disagreed with her. They had a bit of a conversation, a little bit of a debate that took place. Matt ultimately said, you know, she became convinced that what I was saying, because I pointed to my little daughter, Rita, and you all have seen Rita. She's a cute little girl dancing and prancing around our church. And he says, see that little girl? She looks like a little angel, but she's really not. She's a little sinner. I can prove it to you. I have not had to take any effort 
to teach her how to be bad or naughty. I've never had to give her instructions on how to be bad. She finds it on her own. But I have to spend a lot of time teaching her how to be good. I don't have to teach her how to be selfish. She learns that on her own. But I have to teach her how to be selfless and thoughtful of others. I have to teach her those things and show her those things. Have you ever had to teach your children how to be naughty? No. Have you had to teach your children how to be good? Yes. Well, that's because when they're born, they're born with little sinful natures. And that's what the Bible says. And that's why God has to come and save us from our sins. And that was the conversation he had with her. You, you might put it another way. You could, let's say you have a cute little kitten, a beautiful little kitten. What you don't know is that it's not a little kitten. It's a little tiger cub. But it just looks like a little kitten. It purrs just like a little kitten. You enjoy that little kitten and you take it and cuddle it to your breast. And you don't know that as it grows, it's going to grow up to be a tiger. And no matter how cute it is, it has the nature of a tiger. And at some point in time, you might not want to be in the same room with the tiger. Right? It might be dangerous. That's how humans are born. No matter how we look. There's a nature that's changed within us, that's roiling within us, a sinful nature. A.W. Tozer said the reason that God has graciously allowed for human beings to mature and come into maturity over a long process. You know, we raised horses when I was a boy. When a horse was two years old, you could throw a saddle on it and begin riding it. It had begun to reach into maturity. Children take another, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years to come to that point, even longer than that. And during that time, you're teaching and tutoring them. And Tozer said the reason that you do that is because their natures are so sinful, it takes us that long to teach them some moral constraints. If children grew up to reach their full size by the age of two, we'd be afraid to go home after work. We would open the door and throw our hat into the room to make sure that it was safe to enter into the room. Because they're born with sinful natures. Something was corrupted within us. All of human history proves that. All of human history proves that. The other day I was watching a little short video in which someone was interviewing a woman from North Korea and the man suggested to her that, you know, in our country people believe that people are born basically good. And the woman scoffed. Oh, no. No, men are corrupt. If there's not some kind of constraint, if they have power, they manifest their corruption in terrible ways. They gain ultimate power, they corrupt over everyone around them and well, she should know from where she came from and the experiences she had but all of human history demonstrates this go to Genesis chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 here's what Genesis 5 1 through 3 says this is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man he made him in the likeness of God Isn't that wonderful when God made Adam he made Adam in his own likeness he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. Now, Adam has sinned and Adam has fallen. You'll find that in Genesis chapter 3. Adam's son, Cain, has already committed the first murder and you'll find that in Genesis chapter 4. And so now there's a little bit of a synopsis. And so now Adam has another son because his second son, Abel, has been murdered by Cain and Adam has another son named Seth. Now, what's going to be given is the lineage of all the children that are born from Adam, from Seth, all the way down to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. If you read the rest of chapter 5, the stunning thing about it is, you might think it's how long they live, because some of them live for hundreds of years, but that's not the, that's not the stunning thing. It's that 
given the position that God had given them, the blessing that God had given them, the command that God had given them, and that they had failed that command and they disobeyed God and now they would entered under death, the big thing that you'll see in it is that each individual that's mentioned to us at the end of this story it says, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Something had changed. Adam had fallen in sin. And as a result, something had changed in the history of the human race. It's actually explained here in verse 3. Adam lived 130 years, and he begot a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. What happened? What changed? Adam was made in the image of God. The image that Adam was made in fell into corruption and decay, and then Adam began to, from that point on, produce a progeny, of which we're a part of it, who are made, not in God's image entirely, fallen, broken, but were really marked by Adam's image. And Adam's likeness in this fallen state. So what we read here is this, in this passage we just led. It says, through one man, Adam sinned, sin entered into the world, and death came to all men, because all have sinned. That is, all humans demonstrate that they are now infected with the sin of Adam, and in that, like Adam, all sinned. All of us come to sin. Actually, this phrase, all have sinned, is the same thing you find in Romans 3.23, where it speaks of the individual's responsibility before God. It's the exact same words. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now it says, sin entered the world, and now death has come to all men because all have sinned. We've all followed after the air because of this nature, this change in us. We've all entered into sin. Now, let me just tell you very quickly, and this will be our point for today, and then we'll have to go forward, what this doesn't mean. I don't think this does mean. Now, there are individuals who have an argument, a different idea of what they think this means, that all have sinned. And it has been a strong argument, and it's still made by a number of individuals, and it was popular by the reformers who were part of the Protestant Reformation, but I, I don't agree with them. I think they're mistaken. And I understand their argument, and I can follow the argument, and it's reasonable, but I, I still think it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. I think they're mistaken, and I think actually if we were sitting together, these individuals, and we were looking before the same test, I think I could hold up quite well in my understanding. But having said all that, this is my understanding. All right? So, and it's this. Their idea is that this is actually, this phrase, because all have sinned, is a statement of original sin. And it's saying simply this, that all have come under the guilt of Adam's sin. All have come under the guilt of Adam's sin. And it means this, you are born guilty. It's not simply that you're born with the nature that Adam has. It's not that you're born with the proclivities that Adam has. It's not that you're simply born under the new conditions that Adam has brought into the world, a condition of failure and a, a condition of death and a condition in which sin is penetrating all the fibers of creation, but it's that you're actually born under the condemnation of Adam's sin. You're guilty of Adam's sin, and you bear it, so you're born guilty. That's the idea that they would teach, and there's a reason why they teach that, and I'm not going to go into all this, but I, just at this point, I think they're wrong. I think the idea here that all have sinned, we've already seen it in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, is speaking of the individual's accountability. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here as well, sin came into the world because of Adam's sin, and now death comes to all men because all have sinned. And it's just an expression of our own guilt, the fact that we've carried out and we've given demonstration to the fallen nature that came upon Adam. And so... Now, here's the Jewish idea. Basically, the Jewish idea is that you're really not guilty of anything 
unless you have a law before you. And that after Adam, the law didn't come until a long time after that. And so the only guilt that could come to people would only be the guilt that was passed on from Adam because there was no new law that came along. And God wouldn't judge them. And so God only judged them based upon what they were born with, what Adam did. But that doesn't make sense. You see, God judged Cain when Cain sinned. It didn't mean that Abel was perfect and sinless, but God judged Cain when Cain sinned, and God banished him from a place of being able to till the ground. And the Bible says God made Cain a wanderer or a fugitive upon the earth. And Cain actually responds to God and says, this punishment is too hard for me to bear. It was punishment for his own sin and his own judgment. And then God came because sin had increased to such an extent that he sent a flood over all the earth. This is before the law was ever given. And then you might go on and read on that God dispersed the people at the Tower of Babel because of their sins and because they resisted the command of God to multiply and to diversify and cover the face of the earth and take dominion, but they tried to rally in one place and God judged them by confusing their languages and pushing them out. And then you'll see later on, before the law was ever given, that God sends fire down upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroys it. He's judging men for their own sins. And he's not judging them because they were simply born with the guilt of Adam's sin. Now that was a Jewish notion. And Paul is right now, he's beginning to rebut that notion. That this is incorrect and this is not a right idea. And he could have pointed to all these things to demonstrate it. And, and then he might have wanted to remind them of what we just read in Ezekiel chapter 18. In which the prophet stands up against the Jews who have basically given this idea. Well, these Gentile nations are suffering simply because they are ignorant of the law, and they don't know the law. In fact, the Jew had this idea that the Jewish people were under the guilt of Adam's sin as well. But when they came to the law where the law was given and they stood on the mount of the law, they were purified under the hearing of the law. But the Gentile nations were still under the guilt of Adam's sin because they hadn't stood before that law. The prophets respond to that notion, that idea, and are correcting it all the way back in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18, verses 2 and 3. What do you mean when you use this Proverbs concerning the land of Israel saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? Don't use that anymore. As I live, says the Lord, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. You, shall, you shall, won't say that. He concludes in verse 20. The soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. What's happening here, this death that you see taking place, is not because people are just born guilty. It's because they've been born fallen and corrupted and they've fallen in a world in which death has entered in because of sin and it's come upon all men because all men sin. They're suffering for that reason. Romans 2.6, Paul actually says just prior to this that when God comes to bring his judgment, he will render each one according to his own deeds. Just for what they did. Not for what they were born under. Not because of the guilt of Adam. Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13. You might take your Bibles there real quickly. Revelation 20, verses 12 to 13. We read this. It's John's vision of the final judgment. And they saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades were delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. That's the final judgment. They're not to be judged by the guilt of Adam's sin. They are judged to be guilty by reason of their own sin. But listen, they do sin. They will sin because they are corrupt and have been corrupted in the sin of Adam. It all started with Adam. All of this sin, all of this death, 
all of this misery, all of the consequences of that sin, the floodgates of sin and death were opened in history at that time when Adam chose to disobey the clear command of God and do what he wanted instead. Now we're going to look at this a little bit more next week, but Paul is not just being bleak here. Whether you know it or not, Paul is being hopeful because he's going to show us at the end if one man's sin could bring all this misery to the world and all this death to the world, just understand he's a negative type of the positive anti-type, the positive reality of one little sin, eating of a fruit that you're not supposed to eat, could result in all of this corruption. One great, grand, complete, perfect obedience of one perfect, righteous one can set their life down as a sacrifice in order to pay for the sins of many. And if one sin can result in all this misery, one great grand righteousness in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can produce life. In fact, they were ready to recognize the misery that the world had experienced through the sin of Adam. And he's saying, if you can recognize this, then you certainly can understand if God had sent His Son and the Son in perfect obedience laid his life down as a sacrifice for your sins, you can understand that through him you can be made right with God. You can be made right with God. In fact, it's important that you embrace this idea of universal corruption because it points you in a direction of a universal righteousness that can be righted through Jesus Christ alone. And what we realize one day when a new heaven and earth comes, and that's his promise, a very hopeful word, that Paul is actually bringing to us of the scope of the saving work of Jesus Christ that's found in Jesus Christ for all people. We should rejoice in that. It's come to us. We're here because of his faithfulness in this way. Our Heavenly Father, we've rushed through such a weighty matter, and yet, Honestly, Lord, such a self-evident matter. We don't have to look out to the world around us. We don't have to look out to the cosmos around us. We can look out to the cosmos within us to see the turbulence and the disease and the infection of sin, to see what roils in our own flesh. But where can we look for hope? Where can we look for us? cessation to this unending progression and oh the dashed dreams of men who think that they can just teach us and educate us and we will somehow elevate ourselves some through some social evolution from these things it hasn't happened it doesn't happen again and again and again we we find the state of mankind back into the misery of the sin and death lord we have to accept that see it. But then what's the answer? Well, here's the promise for us. May our hearts seize it and take hold of it. Could it be that just as one man's sin brought all this corruption upon us, the perfect righteousness of your son, that one perfect man, that God-man who came and suffered in our place, would open up a way by faith in him to bring us back into perfect righteousness? to restore that which was broken in us so that our hearts might be once again become vessels of your Spirit living and abiding in us. 
that he might bring to us a promise of salvation and justification and righteousness that will prevail not only in this hour, but throughout all eternity. Oh, God, may it be. Here is our one hope, our one point of confidence. Here's where the cup that's before us, as small as it is, reflects a future, a bright and glorious and wonderful future that we exalt in. Help us to see these things. Lord, help us to be faithful to bring that truth to others, the hard facts we have to bring before them, in order then to bring to them the great promise that comes to them through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.